listening to the podcast of East River Park Christian Church. If you'd like to find out more information about the church or donate to this ministry, please visit us at eastriverpark.church. We pray that this is an encouragement to you as you grow in Christ through the local church. I've known I wanted to pursue ministry since I was a senior in high school. Um, I might not have always known what that would look like, um, but desperately wanted people to see the hope that they could have in Christ. And so I did internships at churches. I preached anytime people gave me an opportunity. I pursued a ministry degree at Bible college. I spent hours and hours and hours pouring into the local church. I had leaders affirm my gifts. I had congregants um, encouraging me over my teaching. And yet when, when Bible college was over, I'd say no, no church would hire me. Um, I wasn't experienced enough. I didn't have a seminary degree at the time. I didn't fit their denomination or their picture of a gospel minister. And so it was Two years of sending out resumes to churches and with either really no reply um, or no thanks. And after a while, like that kind, I think that kind of rejection sinks deep into you. I did all of this work, I had all of this affirmation, and I wasn't good enough for these churches. Now I realize there's pos- possibly a million reasons why they said no at the time, and, and all of those reasons are really rooted in God's sovereignty, but in the moment, I, I just could not see it. I couldn't feel it. it. It just, it seemed like I was a giant failure. Didn't feel good enough. And maybe you've been there before. It's just rejection after rejection. You're not good enough for that sport. You're not good enough for that job. You're not good enough for that school or that person. And, and after a while, and it just has a way of digging deep into your soul. You honestly feel like throwing your hands up in defeat, like it kills your motivation. It, it kills your self-esteem. Um, I'm just not good enough. And here comes another rejection in my life. Those are real, frustrating moments. It's this constant lie that we tell ourselves that we don't measure up and we never will. It's this constant lie that we tell ourselves that rejection in our life is it's just imminent. So when you come face to face with life, it's really unhealthy to constantly feel like you're not good enough. For sure. Incredibly unhealthy. But the difficult and real truth we must embrace is when we come face to face with God, it's imperative that we realize we're not good enough. It's the most eternally, biblically way to think. Meaning this is not a message to give you a false sense of security. This this is a message for you and I to see ourselves for who we truly are before the holy God. And the best part is, is when we finally realize this, like when we finally see ourselves for who we 
really are before God. The best part is, is that God does not offer us rejection, but salvation. This is the story of two worthless sons and how our story is often like theirs. We'll be in 1 Samuel 2. Um, I'll start in verse 12. If you have a digital Bible, I'll be reading out of the ESV uh, bulletin. It's all there in your bulletin. Um, before we walk through this narrative together, let's, let's pray. Father, we are so thankful to gather with, with brothers and sisters in Christ to, to hear from you. That's, that's why we've gathered. That's why we woke up on a, a Sunday. We would rather have been in bed or rather have rested at home, got in our flesh, rather just watch TV. God, we, we, we've gathered not just to pat ourselves on the back, not just for a Christian pep rally, God. We've, we've gathered to hear from you. And so God, teach us um, in 1 Samuel 2, a story of, of, of two real sons with two very real problems. God, teach us how we are often like worthless men. And God, how there's still hope in that. And so, God, we submit our, our hearts, we submit our minds to you this morning, and we pray these things in your son's name. Amen. We're introduced uh, to two sons in 1 Samuel 1.3 from the very first week of this series. It says, now this man used to go up year by year from the city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts of Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. Now at the time, we didn't really know much about Eli and his family. We know that Eli is the high priest. We know that he has two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, that were also priests that served in the temple. But what we will very quickly find out this morning is that these two sons, well, they come with lots of baggage. And to be fair, the, the entire family, you'll see this this week and next week, the family just appears to be a mess. This is the beginning of the story of two worthless men. 1 Samuel 2, starting in verse 12, it says this. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men, and they did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. And all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servants would, would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give me the meat. For the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, well, then let him burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish. He would say, no, 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 you, you give it to me now. And if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. 
Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe. She'd take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah, his wife, and his wife, and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. And so then they would return to their home. Well, indeed, the Lord visited Hannah. She conceived, and she bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all of Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And he said to them, why, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, no my sons, it's, it's not a good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, well, who can intercede for him? But they wouldn't listen to the voice of their father. And it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow, both in stature and in favor with the Lord, and also with man. I'm going to answer this question from our passage this morning. How, how are we like worthless men? Now before we even study the details of this narrative, we already see how distorted and twisted and sad these two guys really are. We can already see how these guys lack integrity, outright defy God, and treat people like garbage. So the question this morning is really designed to be quite the indictment. How are we like worthless men? And you might quickly respond with, well, I'm not, nor have I ever been. Yeah, I'm not perfect, but my story isn't marked like their story. And I want to show us from the word how it actually is. How you and I were once considered worthless men and women because worthless men in the Hebrew, it's really translated the sons of wickedness, or even worse, uh, the sons of Be'elo. The Old Testament referred to Be'elo as someone that is, that's rebellious or evil. And then when you look at the New Testament, it took that word even further and referred to Be'elo as the person of Satan. So you can see this referenced in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15. What accord has Christ with Be'elo? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? So if I can be really direct this morning, I'm not just calling us once worthless men and women. I'm calling us sons of disobedience or really sons of Satan. To be fair, I'm not calling us that. The Bible actually calls us that. We read this last week. It will be important for today. This is Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Friends, that, that's the beginning of every 
man and woman's story. See, the gospel is not the story about how confused people become enlightened. The gospel is the story about how dead men come alive. The gospel is the story of how men that followed Satan now follow Christ. The gospel is the story of how sons of disobedience become children of God. That's the impact of the gospel. So I want to prove to us this morning, from the narrative of these two sons, how we were just like them in our sin. How like Hophni and Phinehas, we too were sons of wickedness. And when I'm done with that, we will look at the only hope that we can find. So how are we like worthless men? Here's point one. We did not know God. We did not know God. I mean, we, we only have to read the second sentence this morning to see the root of the problem of these guys. In verse 12, we read that the sons of Eli did not know the Lord. Please, do not gloss over that very revealing line. The priest of Israel... The men in charge of reading the word, hearing from the Lord, the men in charge of serving God's people, those men didn't know the Lord. See, there's a very serious difference between knowing about God and knowing God. Most of us know about God. Most of us have heard about the big stories in the Bible, Adam and Eve, Noah and the boat, Moses in Egypt, David and Goliath. Jesus and his disciples. In fact, most of us just don't know stories in the Bible. We actually even know some of the morality that's taught in the Bible. So growing up, we've heard right and wrong. Even further, most of us can even defend or will defend stories and stand up for moral truths that we've been taught from the Bible. But here's the indictment of the word. Just because you know the stories... Just because you have some sense of morality, just because you rallied for some crosses in Carter County, doesn't mean you know the Lord. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he he put it like this, I'm not asking whether you know things about him, but do you know God? Are you enjoying God? Is God the center of your life, the soul of your being, the source of your greatest joy? He's meant to be. That's what Hophni and Phinehas missed. They spent their entire lives around the temple. They spent their entire lives hearing about God's faithfulness to his people. They spent their entire lives listening to the instruction of what it means to be a Levite priest, but they didn't enjoy God. And God wasn't the center of their life, the soul of their being. God wasn't their greatest joy. That's the dividing line between a believer and an unbeliever. Like there's... There's not a bunch of Christians out there where God is not at the center of their life. No, we just call those people unbelievers. To know God is to enjoy God. And it doesn't matter if you grew up in church or if you have a bunch of the Bible memorized or even if you do a, nice, a lot of nice things in the community. What matters is if you know the Lord and the Lord knows you. And it's the terrifying verses of Matthew 7 that I don't think that we can read too often or too carefully. Matthew 7, verse 21. Yeah, not not everyone who says to me, Lord, 
Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day, many, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not, we didn't prophesy, did we not prophesy in your name, and we cast out demons in your name, and do mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. We were once like worthless men because we might have known something about God. But we really didn't know God. And so I'll, I'll leave us with a, a question at each crossroads this morning. Do you, know, do you know God? Because if you don't, you're still a son or daughter of wickedness. How are we like worthless men? Here's point two. We treated God with contempt. Verses uh, 13 through 16, we, we really see the unfolding of the son's actions. A scene that, that seems so just surreal, wicked, that it's shocking to believe that this actually happened in the temple of the Lord. So here's the scene. Every year, Families would come to Shiloh to worship the Lord and to offer sacrifice. The specific sacrifice mentioned in verses 13 through 16 was something called a peace offering. A peace offering uh, could be given any time people wanted to celebrate the peace that they enjoyed with God. The peace offering was really given for three specific reasons. Uh, either it's Thanksgiving under the payment of a vow, which we have saw the past few weeks, or upon the payment, or the free expression of the worshiper's goodwill. And so we see biblical evidence for the peace offering in Leviticus 3, starting in verse 3. It says, And from the sacrifice of the peace offering, as a food offering to the Lord, he shall offer the fat covering of the entrails, and all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins, and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. Then Aaron's son shall burn it on the altar on top of the burnt offering, which is on the wood on the fire. It's a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. In fact, it's the only sacrifice that the worshipers were allowed to eat. And all of this checks out in these verses this morning. The only thing that doesn't add up is the way that these two priests behaved. In fact, there's no biblical evidence in the Bible that these two priests should be behaving like this at all. What are they doing? Well, the narrative says the, while they're sacrificing the animal and the meat, the meat was boiling, these two sons would take a three-pronged fork, stab it into the pot, and take out whatever uh, was, came with the fork. And certainly no Levitical law support for that one. In fact, before... The fat was even burned from the meat. These two men would, would go to the worshiper and demand that the meat, the meat before it was boiled. And even worse than that, when the worshiper tried to uphold, like the, not the priest, the worshiper tried to uphold, Leviticus 3, 3 through 5, Hophni and Phinehas would demand the food with threatened violence. So in summary, these priests are not only harassing uh, those that come to worship, they're ignoring the word, they're stealing the fat of the meat that should be burned for the Lord. These two men treat God with contempt, 
And that word really means to despise or despise the word of the Lord, meaning we have two guys that ignore God's word for their own pleasure. Two guys that steal what rightly belongs to God. Two guys that treat, two guys that treat God's people like garbage. And you might be thinking, wait, that, I know a lot of religious people that act just like that. Exactly, that's the point. Just because you're religious doesn't mean you know the Lord. Before we knew the Lord, we acted just like these worthless men. We didn't care about the Bible. We didn't care what God had to say about our lives. We did what we wanted, and when we wanted to do it, we pursued the passions of our flesh. Like, yeah, we didn't care about what belongs to God. Everything belonged to us. I mean, it was, it was rightly ours. We deserve it. God's not going to take credit for our work. Like, we didn't care about God's people. Christians, they're, I mean, they're just a bunch of rule followers. Christians were a group to ignore and avoid, not a group to love and embrace. We didn't care about loving those that hated us. We just loved those that loved us. That's the definition of men and women that treat God with contempt. Men and women that ignore God and his word and his people. See, men and women that really know the Lord, well, those people actually follow the word. It says this in 1 John 2, starting in verse 4. Whoever says, I know him, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Whatever, but whoever who keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. And by this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And I'm just going to be as straightforward as I can be. Um, you don't know the Lord if you don't follow the word. Men and women that treat God with contempt, well, they don't follow the word. Yeah, they might know it. Hophni and Phinehas knew it. They just didn't follow it. So the question, uh, do, you, do you treat God with contempt? Because if you do, you're still a son or, or daughter of wickedness. How are we like worthless men? Point three is also given in verse 17, but point three is this. We greatly sinned against God. Verse 17, thus the sin of the young men were was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men greatest the offering of the Lord, or treated the Lord's offering with contempt. And verses 18 through 21 we get really a break from the narrative as we look back at Samuel. He's still a boy. He's ministering to the Lord of the temple. He's clothed in a linen ephod, a sleeveless, hip-length garment that the Leviticus, uh, Levitical priest would wear. His mother, Hannah, uh, would visit him every year to bring him a, a little robe that she had made for him. Okay, and his family, they still went to Shiloh. Hannah still saw her son and cared for her son and invested in the faith of her son. And as verse 21 shows us, the Lord was gracious to Hannah. 
she bore three sons and, and two daughters. See, the writer of 1 Samuel is trying to show us this, this contrast. You'll see this throughout the, the Old Testament, a contrast of two families in chapters 1 and 2. Eli and his boys are priests of the temple, and their lives are falling apart. They're, they're a wicked family that's not fulfilling the role of as priests. And in contrast, you have Elkanah and his family, and they're faithful they're a God-fearing family, and their boy Samuel is being raised to become the new righteous priest of Israel. And if I can divert uh, from the message for just a moment. This is a pattern that you see throughout the Old Testament. Unfaithful men will be replaced by faithful men. Simply, if you're not going to be faithful to God and His mission... I pro- this is a promise. I promise God is already working behind the scenes to see you replaced by someone that will. God's mission will not be stopped by weak and faithless men and women. God's mission of redemption is here and it is coming. It will not be stopped. And this glimpse into Samuel's life is a reminder that some wicked priest of Israel will soon have the hammer dropped on their head. And Eli and his failed family will not cause the failure of God's family. But Eli knows something's wrong with his boys. To be fair... um, He should have known it before it was told to him. I think he probably did. Eli knows something's wrong. And in verse 22, um, see the people, they're going around Israel gossiping about it. People are talking about the two sons that ignore God's word, that steal from the peace offering and threaten the worshipers. But in verse 22, we find the next level of their sin. So Eli's sons are having sex with women that are serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. That's that's the sad scene we find in Israel. And since Eli is very old, um, things need to be addressed. So what we see is this conversation between a dad and his boys um, in verses 23 through 25. I mean, why are you doing these things? I I keep hearing of your mess from all the people in Israel. Boys, I'm getting old. And you'll be leading this show soon. These rumors are spreading like wildfire. If you sin against someone, God will step in. But if you sin against God, who will step in for you? So it's a passive dad confronting wicked sons. And if I could give a hint of warning, wicked sons don't listen to old passive dads. That page's already turned. That's what we find at the end of verse 25, but they wouldn't listen to the voice of their father. 
It's the will of the Lord to put them to death. See, for those that don't know the Lord, for those that treat the Lord with contempt, the Lord will put them to death. Death is the promise that's given to Hophni and Phinehas. The death is the promise given to everyone that is listening that does not know the Lord. That's Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. And, and I do wonder um, if we, and I'm not just talking about you, if, if we all really understand the seriousness of sin. The payment of sin is not a timeout. The payment of sin is not some time in jail. The payment of sin is not mandatory therapy. The payment of sin is the death penalty before a holy God. It was promised to Eli's boys. It's promised to us this morning. Death spread to all men because all sinned. And again, you might be thinking, yeah, but, but I didn't mess up my life like this story. I've never stolen from those offering boxes. I haven't threatened someone in church. I haven't been sleeping with everyone in town. And I would simply say, it literally doesn't matter how much you sinned or how little you sinned. Because the cost of sin is death, and all have sinned. The reason why you and I uh, struggle to see how great our sin really is is because we struggle to see how holy God really is. Do you realize how greatly you and I have sinned against God? Because if you, if you haven't, well, you're still a son or daughter of wickedness. This past Tuesday, my, my daughter had piano lessons, and my wife uh, took her and the boys, and they waited for her to be done. And it should have been a pretty simple outing, but my oldest I was really struggling to listen that day, and my wife had given him warning after warning, and it just was not a, enough. And at one point, I got a, a text message with a picture of him crying, which I won't show on the screen for his own uh, sake. Um, and the text said, honestly, come get, get him. He makes a ton of, he's making a ton of noise and disrupting her lesson. So when we got home uh, that night, I told him that his night was over and that he wouldn't be watching TV, and he needed to write an apology letter to his mother, um, which I don't know if that long-term will work, but um, it did in the moment. And so he sadly shuffled off to his room and wrote her an apology letter for the action, his actions and drew some weird picture of them together. And when he came back out, he gave her the note in the kitchen, and my wife forgave him for his poor behavior. And that was just a small little win for that Tuesday night. And... The truth that we must realize is that when we sin, our sin, it, it impacts those around us. That's for sure. I think so many of us just want to skip over that part. And we must seek to, to reconcile with those that we've actually sinned against. That, that's part of what Eli is saying in verse 25. He says, if you all are sinning against the people of God... Like we, can, we can do something about this. We can make this right. God 
we believe God can restore these relationships in Israel. But the reality is, is boys were not just sinning against men, but against God. And Psalm 51, verse 3 says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Eli realizes that a much more serious problem is going on with his boys. He says, if someone sins against God, who can intercede for him? Eli the high priest knows that his boys have been sentenced to death in their sin. Who can intercede for them? Who can intercede for us in our sin? And the answer is a much better high priest. The answer is the great forever high priest named Jesus who steps in and intercedes for us. Hebrews 7, verse 25. Consequently, he, he being Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Yeah, we were, we were much like worthless men. We didn't, we didn't know the Lord. We treated the Lord and his word with contempt. We, we sinned greatly before the holy God. Who will intercede for us? Well, it's, it's not Eli. Um, and it even won't be Samuel. It can only be Jesus, who is the forever high priest. That's our summary point this morning. The great high priest intercedes for us before God. This morning, like it doesn't matter how worthless you think you are. It doesn't matter how far you've run from God. It doesn't matter the darkness or the twisted wickedness of your sin. When you believe in Jesus, he will intercede for you before the holy God because he is the great high priest we've always needed. Even if you've ruined yourself. Even if you've ruined every relationship in your life. Even if you've set on fire and burned every bridge with those that love you. Even then, there's still hope in Jesus. We were all like worthless men and women. But Jesus, our great high priest, intercedes for us before God. And I'll end with Colossians 1 verse 22. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If you have anything to discuss uh, this morning or just want someone to pray for you, respond to the word. I'd love to do that, but let's pray and then we'll sing.